Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it has just turned four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time until six tonight with Jan Bartlett. Today, comment by young Australian-Palestinian woman Heba El-Farah on the re-election of Netanyahu in Israel. Comment on world affairs by political and social activist Joan Coxich. Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees will be talking about Julian Assange, a Palestinian poet and activist refused a visa to come to Australia and Brexit. And we travel to Malaysia with the takeover bid for the Linus Corporations by West Farmers, and Lee Tand has been there, and the work of the Burma Children's Medical Fund on the Thai-Burma border with volunteer Jackie Whelan. But of course, first up, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when after those vegan terrorists disrupted life and cost the community a fortune Monday last week, then, to compound the attacks on the community, stopping people going about their lawful business, two days later, the bloody evil unions took over the streets, and in my role as a dedicated week that was reporter, I have to admit I joined them, listener, posing as a marcher. And sadly but predictably, have to admit, I never saw one couth person, not one, among this evil rabble. Unlike the couth-sophisticated, respectable citizens like Gina et al., who marched in their tens for positive issues like getting rid of the carbon price, or sorry, carbon tax, or the crippling unfair tax the socialists wanted to impose on super-duper resource profits, or other attacks on the caring business class all of which led the news services that warranted P1 and several inside pages in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media, for instance, good, worthwhile social causes, but obviously they've learned their lesson about giving oxygen to anti-social causes because more than 100,000 brainwashed workers marching for so-called change the rules received very limited coverage. Indeed, on the commercial news I watched, it came in about eighth after critical international news like a road rage incident at Hallam and a footballer beating the rap and other equally important events vital to our collective knowledge. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin buried it back on left-hand P10, stories emphasis repeating its coverage of the previous day that the building and construction jackboots con mission would prosecute construction workers who attended the rally without their caring employer's permission, reminding us that several workers were being prosecuted for daring attend the previous rally when their rightful place in the world was serving their caring employer. Although I can recall attending another illegal stop work at the MCG in 2007 when then Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Kim Beesneys, whose Beesneys kept buckling, promised he would tear up work choices and the workers were told the answer to all their problems lay in going home and voting for the Socialist Party and then when next day Kim became Little Kebby Rod for the workers, Little Kebby, while wiping the blood from the knife, 
also promised to tear up work choices, which included the very clauses under which these workers are being prosecuted. But, but in fairness, little Kebby did tear up the back cover of work choices and change the front cover to Fair Work True Blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it. And don't forget the next big supremo, Julia Gallinghart, after she'd turned the knife on little Kebby, insisted, we must have a tough cop on the bait to beat the evil unions into knowing their place in the world. And at least this time, there's no promises to tear up anything, just vote little Billy and paddle on on a wing and a prayer. Still, if sit-ins and marches are antisocial by preventing people going about their lawful business and costing the public purse tens of thousands, let's hope the whopping sit and other media can find alternatives in the next few weeks to prevent the Anzac Best We Forget march disrupting our lives and later the Grand Final, the Melbourne Cup, the Great Department Store's Christmas Parade, the sorts of out-of-control lawlessness we must eradicate. Meanwhile, on lawlessness, the US of the UN of the US of the world is anxious to extradite the now incarcerated Julian Assange, although his holding up in the Ecuadorian embassy for the past seven years was also a form of incarceration. Ah uh, yes, what is his crime? We are spokesperson Major Chuck Slaughter III. He exposed war crimes by our brave young cream of US of youth, men and women in uniform. Uh, so what's his crime? His crime was exposing our war crimes. Although, let me qualify that, the US Army does not commit war crimes. Like shooting civilians for fun. You must understand that our brave young cream of US Army youth, men and women in uniform, are under great stress, need a bit of fun, and they know how evil the people we send them to slaughter are, or sorry, to liberate are. Uh, like wedding parties. You must understand that wiping out wedding parties cuts up the creation of evil terrorists at the source. Thank you, Major Slaughter. Pleasure. And be very, very careful what you report. After saying he loved WikiLeaks, I love WikiLeaks, when it was leaking on his opponent during the election campaign, Donald Trump or the poor now says he knows nothing about WikiLeaks. And given we were in the middle of the US of Masters, we can say par for the course. On ele oh, election campaign reminds me. No, 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 no need, to, no need to say it. We all know what I'm reminded of. And already it's unbearable. But one great believer in democracy. Some weeks ago, a pamphlet turned up among my junk mail, which led me to reassess my attitude to mining part-time poly Clive Palmer Gina. Because apparently, before the electors threw him out, he devoted his life to promoting legislation which has made women's lives so meaningful, informing me that almost every benefit women enjoy in True Blue Aussie is down to Clive. And obviously, all the men in Clive's almost eponymous party are also dedicated little feminists because the other day this ad appeared telling us who to vote for, the 17 candidates running for party Parmagena in Victoria and for a man so dedicated to promoting women, obviously the 15 men of the 17 must be even greater advocates for women than women themselves. Clive also wants to pay those workers from his failed nickel mine to whom he owes millions after he nickeled off, but now he says he didn't sack the workers or owe them millions, it was the liquidator. 
wonder if he'll repay the public purse which picked up the bill for the workers' entitlements or part thereof. He wants to make up the difference, which is still millions, because Townsville, where the workers lived, is going through hard times. His logic obviously being there's no obligation to pay workers unless their city is hit with a typhoon especially when there's the public purse to do it for you. Owen oh, Clive made it clear several times that the election has absolutely nothing to do with his decision, as if we'd think it did. But there are a few little details he has to sort out before he can pay up. He can't just give them a bit of what he owes them, and we can be sure he'll do his best to sort those details out before the election. Now the minor parties. Sunday, big supremo scuttled them all ash son, shared his wisdom with young people. Nothing to do with polls showing youth are not voting for the caring business class lot big time. Shared his wisdom um, telling them their future lay in Christian compassion and fiscal discipline. Beautiful sentiments and invaluable advice. Uh, love thy neighbour scuttled them. Absolutely. Unless thy neighbour is a no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat person who must be locked up for life, uh, but, but with Christian compassion. A given, Scuttle, them a given. Yes, yes, it, it is obvious. Or an evil union member, or any worker for that matter, or anyone who doesn't vote for me. That doesn't leave too many neighbours to love. But they are neighbours I love having as neighbours. And don't forget the dear baby Jesus died this weekend so those neighbours could vote for me and to save your miserable soul. In, in that, Jesus and I have something in common. Alike, I'm dying to win the election. And this week's definition of fake, the crowd, including the usual suspect rows of pollies at Little Billy's rallies, whose faces light up, laughing and bubbling with excitement, who look like seeing Little Billy is the most exciting thing in the whole world. Fake, fake, fake. Visual hypocrisy. Confected rubbish. No one, no one could be excited at the sight of Little Billy. I wouldn't be surprised if even he eschews the mirror in the morning. Perhaps I'm being unfair singling out little Billy. They all do it. Someone whose back they were eyeing off with a long knife in hand and clandestinely denouncing yesterday, they cheer and applaud as the world's saviour today. Zion had the choice of saviours this week, much to the excitement of the Palestinian non-people on whose land the election was taking place. The choice of long-term supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, and former number one trained killer Benny Glantz Wright, whose expertise at trained killing and slaughter and destruction the non-people know full well. Uh, so what was the choice? It was a choice between annexing even more land in Quito and ever-expanding Zion and ensuring the non-people have no home, or not annexing even more land in Quito and ever-expanding Zion in the immediate and ensuring the non-people have no home. The people chose the former. The really encouraging thing is Benny, whom we protested against a couple of years ago when he was brought here by the extreme Zionist lobby, was seen as the moderate candidate. And the still big Supremo Benjamin's coalition partners in government are all seen as being on his right. 
great news for the non-people terrorists who regularly threaten Zion by protesting on the border of and gazing nostalgically through the border wall into their country, some of whose youth and children throw stones at the poor Zion train killers protecting Zion from this terrorism. Finally, when he sees the border wall through which the anti-terrorist train killers shoot the land-grabbing terrorists, Donald Trample, the poor, must be green with envy. Any wonder he so admires Zion. Good afternoon. Mr Kevin Healy, and <clears throat> as I show you each week, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. In 1996, Benjamin Netanyahu won his first term as Prime Minister of Israel. Then last week, he began his fifth term. I'm speaking now with Heba Elfara, an executive member of Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, Western Australia. And Heba, what has his time in power so far meant for Palestinians? I can talk to you about uh, how... The election of Netanyahu has left some Palestinians feeling the ultimate despair. Uh, the Palestinians' hope of a balanced peace proposal were already low. They are now more than ever left facing a bleak future. We need to remember that the Palestinian people have been living under brutal Israeli occupation for decades. And the election of Netanyahu, again, is proof that Israel has voted for the candidate that would ensure the continuing of oppression, occupation, annexation, and dispossession when it comes to the Palestinian people and Palestine. Electing him is, in other ways, electing a far-right policy of apartheid that does not seem to care about humanity, international law, or human rights. He built his whole campaign on playing on both fear and prejudice. He pressed the panic button in hope of bringing right-wing voters by calling his opponent weak. That made them all come running to vote for him and his party. The Palestinians are not hopeful for peace to be achieved at all at this stage. The reality is that Netanyahu has never wanted peace or acted towards it. The war he launched on Gaza shows that. The siege on, the Gaza, on Gaza shows that. The treatment of the Palestinians, whether inside Israel or in the West Bank, show that. Uh, so does the state law and the peace process that proved that it was only a way to buy time and build as many illegal settlements as he could. They all show that. So yes, the Palestinians are very pessimistic and they have every right to feel this way. And you've got um, other Palestinians that don't really see any difference, whether he or any other candidate was elected. At the end of the day, Israel has proved time and again that making peace with the Palestinians is not something that is first on its agenda or even on its agenda at all. You've got those of them that were very distraught and very pessimistic once they found out about the election of Netanyahu, and you've got the rest that were thinking, oh, well, if it was Netanyahu or if it was Benny Gantz... Uh, in the end, it's the same. There is no hope for the Palestinians. How much influence on Netanyahu's policies on Palestine do you believe is linked to his friendship with Trump? Oh, definitely. His friendship and his close ties with Trump and Kushner both 
has made a huge impact on him being elected. Um, I think he even used the same tactics and strategies. So I, I, I do believe that Netanyahu, his relationship with Trump, had an impact in some way or the other. What do you believe will happen on the Gaza border now that he has won the election? Well, what we've been seeing in the past year is that Netanyahu deals with the Gaza border, um, sending his snipers, killing the Palestinian people in the most brutal way. Um, I don't think any of that is going to change because it is still going and no one's stopping them or telling him. And being elected is proof that people are happy with his, with his actions. So he'll continue doing what he's doing. And, of course, he continues to do things that are against international law. And now he's come out and said that he plans to annex West Bank settlements. What does international law say about that? Well, days before the polls, Netanyahu said that he plans to annex all the Israeli illegal settlements that are built on Palestinian land in the West Bank. He used this as a last magic trick to get more voters to vote for him. And obviously, it did work. And they did vote for him. Many Palestinians think, well, it has been in an indirect way annexed anyway, because he's been continuing with the building of the settlements regardless of uh, international law. International law says that this is land that he should not and uh, has been called upon a lot. Israel has been called upon by uh, international law to stop building of settlements and it took no notice of that and continued building even during the negotiations with the Palestinians. You would even think that Israel, to show goodwill at least, during the negotiations would stop the building of settlements. Israel, on the other hand, continued the building of the settlements regardless of being in the midst of a peace process when they were doing the peace talks. The settlements never stopped. Annexing it is something that was expected to happen and the world needs to be standing firm against it. And there's no joy from the neighbouring Arab states to oppose what Israel is doing? The, the problem is you've got very weak governments that are around in that region and you've got some that are starting close to, to build close ties with Israel so they do not want to jeopardise their relations with Israel. You've got the only country I could think of is Jordan is the one that is standing against that at the moment. And you've got Syria that is going through their own horrors. So it is quite a difficult situation. What's been the reaction that you've heard of Palestinians on the ground to this latest news of Netanyahu's victory? What are the people saying? As I mentioned before, you've got different views. Some people think that, well, whoever that was going to come in power was going to be doing the same thing anyway. No one can hear our cry for help, and therefore, whether it was him or if it was against, it's the same thing. He was uh, uh, the head of the army, and he launched the attack on the war on Gaza in 2014. So, they are in despair, and I can feel how they could be feeling this way because all doors are being shut in their faces and their cry for help is unheard. And then on top of that, you've got Netanyahu that 
has done everything that would make you think that he wouldn't be voted in again, and still he was voted in. So they can see that they're going to be faced with a bleak future. Do you have family in either the occupied West Bank or in Gaza? I do have family there, yes. Moving to talk about two women. The first is Melissa Park, who just days ago pulled out of the federal election for the seat of Curtin in Western Australia, where you live. Do you know Melissa? Yes. Miss Park is uh, simply a respectful lady with integrity. And although I do believe every word she said, I am not here to validate her story, as I was not with her when it did happen. All I can say is that all the incidents that have been documented on checkpoints over the years tell us that a story like this is not unlikely to happen at all. If anything, I am sure there are much worse horrifying and much more horrors that the Palestinians have to face on daily basis when going through checkpoints, and that's known to many. You only need to go to Palestine and go through a few checkpoints to be able to witness similar stories. People dying in ambulances for having to stop at checkpoints for hours, kids being searched and denied entry to go to their schools and universities, and in many times uh, taken uh, for questioning. Constant humiliation for the Palestinians on their way to work, school, hospital, and so on. What the Honorable Melissa Park had to go through is simply because she chose not to be silenced and because of her integrity that made her the respectful politician she is now. It is what makes her a target for those that do not want the truth to come out. Uh, so those smear tactics that are being used to silence politicians uh, will be the very reason people will start seeing the truth. And we have to acknowledge that Melissa is a, a long-time human rights lawyer and worked for the UN in Gaza. Definitely. Ms. Park was simply highlighting what she had seen in Gaza during the time she had been there. But sometimes people prefer to cover their ears rather than listen to the cry for help and actually do something about it. And also her work in Parliament. She would have been a member of parliamentarians for Palestine. Is that correct? I can't really say if that is the case or not. I know that she works for Palestine. She, she always is a great advocate for Palestine. One more thing I just needed to say. As a Palestinian Australian, I have enormous respect for Ms. Park. And although I do respect her decision to step down and resign, I worry for the future of our free speech in Australia. And when, as I mentioned, those other parliamentarians who support Palestine in both state and federal governments, they must be under a lot of pressure as well from the Zionist sure lobby. Yeah, definitely. I am sure about that. And I think this needs us all to stop and think uh, about free speech in Australia, because if that is going to be the case, then free speech is in, in danger. And it seems to be focusing mainly on Palestine, doesn't it? Whenever the word Palestine comes up, it's anti-Semitism is labelled. A hundred percent, although uh, the word Palestine has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. What the Palestinians are fighting for is their right to exist, their right to, to have a state of their own, to um, be treated humanly in a humane way. Uh, it is not a religious uh, war between two people at all. It is 
the Palestinians wanting to be treated as humans. Have you also been following the campaign by supporters of BDS against Madonna singing at Eurovision? Yes, I have. In the month that Israel won Eurovision, more than 130 Palestinian people were shot and killed in cold blood by Israeli snipers at the Gaza border. Some Palestinian people have been living under brutal Israeli occupation since the creation of Israel. The rest are um, either refugees or living within Israel uh, as second-class citizens. We can't simply celebrate Eurovision in Israel while the Israeli government enforces apartheid and ongoing human rights abuses against Palestinians on a daily basis. And just like the campaign that ended apartheid South Africa, the international solidarity is vital. Australia always takes pride in its role that is it played in defeating apartheid in South Africa, and the Palestinian situation is no different. Madonna, on the other hand, is meant to perform a couple of songs on the Eurovision stage in Tel Aviv. We are calling upon her not to participate in this whitewashing or art-washing act that portrays Israel as art and music-loving nation when it is in its very dark backyard. It is committing all sorts of atrocities against the Palestinian people. No one has the right, I remember around, I think it was 2014 when the war in Gaza uh, was launched, uh, Madonna herself tweeted uh, something in support of uh, the Palestinian children of Gaza whom were murdered by the Israeli army. So why is she accepting to perform in Israel that is still oppressing the Palestinian people till this minute? There was a call from many, many musicians and fans around the world asking her not to artwash Israel's crimes by performing over there. And we still have hope that she would listen. And the same hope goes for our very own Kate Miller, of course. It's also disturbing that an Israeli-Canadian billionaire has paid a million dollars either to her or to Israel for her to be there. He did. That's a lot of money. It, that's a lot of money, and um, I thought her principles would be heavier than the money, but unfortunately, in, in that case, up till now, it looks like money did talk, but we're hoping that her conscience would wake up and choose not to artwash what Israel is doing in its dark backyard. And as you said, there's been protests in many countries and different groups and even media in different countries boycotting Eurovision. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to say? I'd like to thank you for having me and I'm hoping that people will try and research and look for the truth and not be silenced because the truth is there if you want to look for it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I've been speaking with Heba Elfara, who lives in Perth, and she's a, a member of the executive of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, Western Australian branch. And if you want to find out more about BDS and also APAN, just Google, if that's what you do, apan.org.au and BDS Australia. 
find out more what you can do to support Palestinians at this time. Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au. Introduce now political and social activist Joan Coxidge with her monthly analysis of politics worldwide. A lot has happened in the past few weeks, including the forthcoming election, which I'm going to ignore because it's full of crappy ads and moronic press releases sent out by a pack of drongos who dodge all the hard questions, especially if they involve foreign affairs and our relationship with the US and Israel. Speaking of which, how disgraceful that a Labor candidate was forced to withdraw from the campaign because she dared to support the rights of the Palestinians. Tell the truth if you dare in this benighted country, which leads me to Julian Assange and NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, the Cold War military alliance that turned 70 a few weeks ago. But first, the killing of journalism, the no-holds-barred, all-out criminalisation of journalistic practice. A couple of days ago, it was sickening watching an unwell, handcuffed Australian citizen, Julian Assange, being dragged from the Ecuadorian embassy by six burly policemen when he was a legitimate political refugee supposedly protected by international law, of which Britain is a signatory, but apparently not worth a cracker in today's dystopian New World Order. Ironically, he was clutching a copy of Gore Vidal's book, The History of the National Security State, when he was arrested. Directed by the thugs in the White House, in cahoots with the ultra-rightist president of Ecuador, Lenin Marino, who likes a bit of torture, out the window went any pretense of fairness or decency. As if by magic, the US erased Ecuador's financial troubles and ordered the IMF to release a $4.2 billion loan. Immediately after, Ecuadorian diplomats invited the London police to come inside their embassy and arrest their guest. Might against right, making a mockery of what's left of any democratic ideals. His arrest is an international scandal and once again highlights the shocking extraterritorial reach of the US of A. And a clear warning to the few journalists left who continue to write about our world as it really is. If he is extradited to America for publishing the truth, where will it stop? If it can happen to the founder and editor of WikiLeaks, it can happen to anyone prepared to stick their neck out. David McCraw, lawyer for the New York Times, sees his arrest as a very bad precedent for publishers, and the law would have a very hard time distinguishing between the New York Times and WikiLeaks. Even if other journalists are not summoned by an American grand jury, you would reckon the spectacle 
of the gross intimidation of Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange, which shut them up. And now Sweden wants to get on the act by extraditing him for allegations of rape. We have a lousy record in Australia where governments of both stripes are slick to Washington. There are currently two whistleblowers who exposed the fact that Canberra spies had bugged cabinet meetings of the new government of East Timor so that they could cheat this tiny, very poor country out of its legitimate share of oil and gas reserves. We won't know what happens because their trial will be held in secret, which is why we desperately need real journalism, not like the wretched Guardian, which after doing nicely from WikiLeaks revelations, then published a load of lies about Assange, not least of which was the supposed visit of a group of Russians to the Ecuadorian embassy, which is not true, it did not happen. But what did happen was that WikiLeaks published reams of material about America's catastrophic war in Iraq, a war based on lies and prosecuted by criminals and fools and outsourced to professional murderers that is still going on. In addition to the million-plus Iraqis who died in the war, several million desperate refugees are scattered around the Middle East, including over a million in war-torn Syria, with ISIS growing out of the ranks of the disbanded Iraqi army. Perhaps the most damning video showed American soldiers methodically slaughtering civilians, including two Reuters staff, none of them anywhere near a theatre of war. These were targeted murders. Why aren't the war's architects and chief instigators in the dock at The Hague pleading for their lives like Tony Blair, George W. Bush and John Howard, all of them war criminals? There is no statute of limitation, so it could still happen and pigs might fly. In the 1970s, John Pilger met Leni Riefenstahl. She was a close friend of Adolf Hitler, and her films helped the Nazis win over the German people. She told him that the propaganda in her films was made possible, not by orders from above, but by the submissive void of the public. When people stop asking serious questions, they are malleable, and anything can happen, and is happening. And I want to say a few words about NATO. This month, NATO, the North American Treaty Organization, turned 70, a notorious outfit that worked closely with the CIA and Britain's MI6 to spread terror and psychological warfare in in Europe immediately after its formation at the end of World War II. It is forgotten that when NATO was signed, most of the founding members were colonial overlords, and when its member states agreed to support each other in response to an attack by an external party, that is the Soviet Union, and propaganda techniques of the Nazis to learn how to develop an efficient military NATO machine. The ostensible practice for its founding back then was to thwart Soviet aggression, but in practice it was a fundamental part of the Pentagon's world command structure and a prop for Western capital, and after the fall of the Berlin Wall became the main support for Wall Street. The media, academics and policymakers kept stum on the activities of its post-World War II stay-behind armies and false flag operations that created massive global insecurity or the manipulations of people around the world to ensure NATO's survival in its fraudulent interventions and bombings right up to its present wars against the peoples of Iran. Before 1991, NATO planners pretended it was needed for ideological and political grounds. 
But with the threat of a multipolar war and the diminution of the US dollar, NATO has shown its true colours by expanding to the extent where it's became known today as global NATO to reflect its current imperial mandate. Now made up of 29 members from Europe and North America, along with 49 or 41 rather so-called partners that started under the banner of the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, NACC. Since then, NATO has launched a war without end in Afghanistan, colluded in the destruction of Iraq, and conspired with militarists to forge partnerships for peace, ha-ha, with most members from the former Warsaw Pact states. The core 29 members are now enmeshed with treaties and undertakings from states in the Mediterranean region, Bahrain, Kuwait, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, along with partners from across the globe, Afghanistan, Australia, Colombia, Iraq, Japan, Republic of Korea, Mongolia, New Zealand and Pakistan. This enlargement has one main military purpose, encircle China and Russia as spelled out in testimony given before a joint session of the US Congress when its Secretary-General Stoltenberg advocated a military build-up against Russia, a horrible reminder of the inter-imperialist rivalry between 1929 and 1939 when working-class people fought against each other in Europe, spreading barbarism around the world from Auschwitz to Hiroshima. We can see from recent events in Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya that the moguls of Wall Street are willing to wage as many wars, to destroy as many countries and to kill as many people as necessary to achieve the dominance of US capitalism and to contain progressive forces. In the current digital age, brain hacking and smartphones have placed giant tech firms like Apple, Google Amazon, Microsoft and Facebook at the forefront of the new weapons platform of NATO and Wall Street. So here we are fighting on so many fronts against war and militarism and NATO and against the US deep state which will never forgive Manning and Assange in what amounts to a de facto declaration of war underlining how dangerous WikiLeaks had become because it practiced investigative journalism. Julian Assange is a publisher. He leaked absolutely nothing. This is all about war crimes committed in Afghanistan and Iraq. He is not a US citizen. He's an Australian. WikiLeaks is not a US-based media outfit, but if Washington gets Assange extradited, prosecuted and incarcerated, it will legitimise its right to go after anyone, anyhow, anywhere, anytime and we must keep up the pressure on the Australian government to bring him home as a free man. Good afternoon and good luck. And that was Joan Coxedge, former Labor parliamentarian many years ago, but still a social commentator and right there with what's happening all around the world. It's great to have her on Tuesday Home Time. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. 
My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Next three commentaries published in the excellent online Pearls and Irritations, edited by John Menager. And these are by Stuart Rees, OIM, Professor Emeritus at the Sydney University and recipient of the inaugural Jerusalem Al Quds Peace Prize. Begin Stuart with the arrest by the Metropolitan Police of Julian Assange following the invitation by the ambassador to the UK, to the embassy, to arrest him. It's a trumped-up set of arrangements between the Americans, the Ecuadorians and the British. They call it justice, but in fact it, it derives from what I call the culture of revenge. Uh, America doesn't like anybody to expose the truth about their murderous wars, and... Um, so they've had this medieval arrangement of what they call a grand jury sitting in secret for years, trying to concoct a charge against Assange. I don't think it's about, we can use the word illegal, but I don't think it's about law. I think it's about what I call the culture of revenge. I'm also thinking about the Ecuadorian law and international law, because he was a refugee. Yeah, look, I, I think he's, he's entitled to asylum. They're behaving as though international law is of no consequence. I think there's a strong argument for saying that it's, um, you know, that the behaviour is illegal. It's, it's oh, what we're witnessing is about who's got the most military, di- diplomatic, and economic power. It's not about the law. Uh, they're, they're, they're ignoring, ignoring the, his basic human rights as a, as an asylum seeker. Can I go back to the beginning with this persecution of Julian and I'll quote the first paragraph of your article. If an individual is repeatedly labelled unusual, deviant, criminal, possibly a terrorist, that person's guilt of something reprehensible begins to be taken for granted. Correct. When did it start and how has it proceeded over that time? Well, I, I think from the, uh, from the time when he started to release information about the, uh, the power of America uh, and other military powers. The time when he was suspected of um, committing sexual offences after a barbecue in Sweden, then the media, media like, say, the front page of the Daily Telegraph in this country and the, and the dreadful tabloid in Britain and the right-wing bully boy Republican behavior in America produced a stereotype image of him. So people basis people don't investigate it, they just accept the the stereotype. It's it's at, at best it's called advertising, at worst it's criminal propaganda propaganda, which is what they've been doing. We need every family, community, country needs a scapegoat and for years Assange looks like a, is a convenient scapegoat. And he's in a long line of journalists and others who have 
contributed significantly to freedom of speech oh. and freedom of the press, and they've been similarly treated. Sure, that's a great question. I mean, over the centuries, you can, uh, can identify all the people who've made a difference. I mean, just go back as far as Tom Paine and the rights of man. I mean, Tom Paine and the rights of man in the 18th century was writing about the rights of people like Julian Assange. So, so the British, who always say they know about justice, charged him with sedition and he had to escape to France. Similar things happened with... Um, Daniel Ellsberg over the Pentagon Papers. I mean, most of our freedoms, the freedom of the press, the freedom of speech, we owe to people like Assange over the centuries who've challenged the establishment's monopoly of power. <laughs> That's what's going on. And I'm just wondering about the impact of this arrest on Chelsea Manning. Well, I mean, the cruelty to Chelsea Manning is um, characteristic of... Uh, the sadism that passes for justice in in the United States. I mean, we only have to think about you know, what went on for years and years in Guantanamo and still does. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea Manning has been, has been in, put into solitary confinement because she would not testify against Assange. There's a brave, very brave uh, Democrat congresswoman in the States, um, Alexandria Octavio Cortez, who's who's complained, who's had the courage to complain about the treatment of Manning in relation to Assange. We just have to keep our fingers crossed that the Australian politicians show, this, show a bit of courage in the next few months. That's going to be a problem. It certainly will be a problem. They certainly haven't given him much support in the, the last years. No, no, no. I mean, Julia Gillard behaved appallingly mm. over... Um, over Assange in the first place. I mean, she she knew in a in a kind of dogmatic way that he was that he committed criminal offences, and it took the Australian Federal Police to tell her, "Sorry, madam, he has not committed any offences." But but her but she, from her lofty position, she was arrogant enough to say that he that he had that helped fill in the kind of stereotype image. So is it up to the British government now? What happens next? I think it's up to us. I think it's up to the international to, to solidarity around the world. The question of extradition proceedings is going to be fought like mad. I mean, the Council of Europe um, has already said that under no circumstances will they tolerate him being uh, extradited to the United States. <laughs> What's the... I mean, the Australian government seems to have forgotten that he's an Australian citizen. Which doesn't seem to worry the Australian government. What no, happens to us? No, no, somebody said this morning if this was an Australian citizen kept in um, prison illegally in Beijing, then we, we'd be frothing at the mouth. <laughs> I, I need to say to those Australian politicians, please, try courage. It's quite good for you. It's good for your mental health and it's good for your physical health. You really should try it. You should stop ducking for cover. So, so, yeah, of course, he's got to go through the British courts, but um, I think there'll be a massive outcry around the world on this one. I mean, uh, so that, that's, that's my hope, and I'll, I'll do as much as I can. We've only got to remember the Australian government's reaction to Hakim's. Well, it, it, I mean, the, the Hakim al-Arabi is a good example. I mean, of course, he was... Uh, the pictures of him in leg irons in a Thai jail 
excited the public and there were uh, there was a kind of diplomatic alliance crafted largely by the wonderful Craig Foster but also by the Australian ambassador to Thailand to defend Hakim it seems to me we need we need something similar uh, over Julian Assange because Assange is being threatened with exactly the same cruelty that that um, that was being uh, threatened to um, Hakim Al-Arabi. Yes, they're saying, oh, well, there's, there's only one charge against him. It might be five years, but that you couldn't trust the American system not to found all these other no, charges no, no. against him. I've had long years of experience of American justice and indeed of the arrogance of British justice, so I have some idea what I'm talking about. Well, what should the general public be doing who are concerned about well, I, this? I think they need to be ten times better informed than they have been. I think they need to realise that the look. They, they need to realise that what was in the cables, the release of the cables, put nobody's lives at risk. It mostly exposes what um, American diplomats, in alliance with American corporations, were trying to do to manipulate the world's economies. And my argument, you've probably seen it, is why, is that, why was that a crime? The dominance of American corporate power and American military power and American diplomatic power really has got to be exposed. And we've, in, in meetings, whether it's locally or nationally, there has to be um, massive protest. I mean, I took part years and years and years ago in a massive rally in Wembley Stadium was called Free Free Nelson Mandela. Now, of course, Julian won't have the uh, immediate appeal that um, the wonderful Mandela had, but it's that it, we're going to have to build that kind of support and momentum. The people have to understand that key principles of freedom are at stake. And there is time, isn't there? Because I did read that until his health improves, and you can imagine what his his health must be now after being shut into virtually a room for nearly seven years, that they can't deport him to America while he's not well. Is that true? And I'm not quite across that one. I think his health will be an issue, certainly. Yes, the, the vision of him didn't look good, did it, when they arrested him? <laughs> not at all. I mean, I think if I'd had seven weeks cooped up in one room, I'd, I'd look pretty rotten. Move on to another, which also concerns Australia, and that's the, the denial of a visa for American Palestine poet Remy Kanazi. Yeah. Can you tell us who this man is? Well, he's, um, he's quite a well-known poet in the United States. Most of his poetry is about human rights, it's about citizenship, it's about um, it's, uh, protests about human rights abuses in Palestine, in Iraq and elsewhere. I think he's, uh, I mean, I've, I've not been president of any of his presentations. He's treated as a performing poet. I mean, since when have poets threatened national security? The trouble is there's a kind of stupid, ill-informed, knee-jerk reaction in the Department of Home Affairs in Canberra that says anybody with the word Palestine attached to their name must be a threat to Australia. So they denied him in the first instance. They denied him a visa. Where it's got to now because presumably he has reapplied. Where it's got to now, I don't really know. It's just possible. I'm not quite up to date on that one. It's possible that, he's, that he might still get a visa. But it's this knee-jerk reaction to the word Palestine. Yes. But if, it's, if, if some right-wing 
militarist Israeli academic applies to come here, he gets welcomed with open arms. Yes, Mr. Ganst. But it, it, they can't stop this man being heard because th- there's all the technology now with sure, Skype sure. and, and but everything. We, that, yeah. It, but we've been denying, why shouldn't he come here? Exactly. Why shouldn't he meet people? Uh, why shouldn't he be able to perform? And he's been to many other countries as well. Absolutely. He's toured, he's toured America. He's toured the United Kingdom. What, what's so precious about Australia? Rhetorical question, Jan. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it was. Finally, to Brexit, your papers called it a democratic absurdity. And I'll just read your opening paragraph. Fear, deceit, racism, illegalities and foreign interference contribute to British Brexit vote to leave the EU. The referendum outcome resulted from a great contract democratic absurdity which should never have been taken seriously. There's a lot in there. Right, well, Brexit is, is part of... It's the British equivalent of Trump's Make America Great. Absurd nonsense that if Britain um, left the European Union, the glory days of empire would re-emerge. You can hear that in the pronouncements of, um, of Tories like Jacob Rees-Mogg. But also, in my view, it should have been declared, the referendum result should have been declared null and void. It was, a, it was based on lies, it was based on racism, it was based on Russian money, it was based on all sorts of illegalities. So how the outcome could have been taken seriously, I don't know. It should have been declared null and void, of no consequence. That would have been much more democratic than Theresa May rushing around saying she's in taking her instructions from the British people in that vote. What about David Cameron's role in this? Well, he was totally... I mean, he thought he'd solve... He, he thought he'd solve his um, problem with the right wing of the Tory party. I mean, he's washed his hands of it. I mean, he's, he personally will suffer no consequences. He should be openly campaigning to remain in the European Union. He should be telling people what the benefits of, of uh, being part of a, of a large trading bloc are, and he should be explaining why the European Union, one of its purposes was to, was to maintain peace in Europe. That's what he should be doing, but of course he's, he's not to be seen as far as I can make out. And the Labour Party and others in the Parliament? Well, the trouble with the Labour Party is that they got a, um, they seem to think that that the difficulties in some of the poorest Labour constituencies were caused by bureaucrats in, in Brussels, when in fact the, the large parts of the country which voted to leave were in fact the beneficiaries of enormous subsidies and um, uh, support from, from the European Union. North East England, Wales, they voted to leave, stupidly in my view, there's a record of people voting against their own interests. I mean, the other, the other factor we have to understand in Britain is the incredibly toxic, dangerous influence of the Murdoch media. That's a very dangerous, poisonous influence, frankly, all around the world, as far as I know, certainly in Europe, certainly in America, certainly, certainly in Australia. Wait for the avalanche of abuse that's going to be thrown around by the Murdoch media in the next five weeks in Australia. And the people of Britain, they divided? Are they divided? Well, they're split right down the middle. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's almost 
mean, the, the media, the, the Murdoch media, is trying to label people who, uh, the politicians who voted to remain as, as traitors to the country. I mean, that's the sort of divisiveness that's going on. We have two from here. We've got now until the 31st of October. I'm hoping that um, whatever decision is made, they'll have to attach the support for a second referendum to it. And that'll bring racists out of the woodwork again, right? That, that'll, that'll, that'll be pretty divisive. But, look, I, for once I begin to despair. It'll be something cobbled together. I mean, the, the sad thing is, too, is that the European Union... Is, uh, and the, the benefits of the European Union for 27 other countries is being totally neglected in the interests of following the absurdities in Britain. And what has it done to the British economy this last two years of I, wrangling? As far as, I, as far as I can make out, it's peddling backwards as fast as possible. You know, firms are leaving, uh, there's no certainty. The issues of um, poverty and unemployment and... Uh, you know, particularly in the National Health Service, the shortage of doctors and nurses, and in transportation, the employment of migrants who make the, make the system tick, that's all being eroded. There's not too many issues at the moment to make people happy, is there, Stuart? No, 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 there is. Only the finding of the judge against the behaviour of the Daily Telegraph yesterday. That's the only sign of optimism I can see. Can you explain that one? Well... <laughs> The Daily Telegraph wrote appalling ac accusatory articles about uh, the actor Jeffrey Rush, and he sued them. I mean, they get, a they get away with derision as a form of journalism, a poisonous derision every day of the week. And um, it's going to cost them a lot of money because the judge found for the actor and against the Daily Telegraph. So in terms of yesterday's news, and don't mention Adani to me, um, that was the only sign of optimism. Well, I will, I will mention Adani to you. Where's they going to okay. go? Well, I, I, I think it's a test case for the, in the election. We have to believe that the protection of a fragile and precious environment is a major issue in the election. And, of course, we have to talk about the generation of different forms of employment in a post-coal, post-fossil fuel age. We've all got to apply ourselves to that question of generating different forms of work. In fact, we've, we've got to redefine what we mean by work. And I want to hear those arguments, but the, um, the, <laughs> the, this coalition government couldn't care, couldn't care a damn about that. <laughs> I mean, they, they, threatened, they threatened the Minister for the Environment to, um, to pass that um, the agreement over the, um, uh, the next step to approve Adani. It's so blatant, wasn't it? Yeah, it's totally blatant. We can talk again and put the world left. I'm oh, sorry, right. Right. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Okay, no, thank you for your interest. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees in Sydney. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. The business pages of the corporate media here in Australia are full of... um, proposed takeover of the Linus Corporation and I spoke with Lee Tan who's been following this issue for many many years. Lee you were actually in Malaysia until very very recently. When did the news about a takeover bid for the rare earth miner and processor Linus Corporation become public and what was the initial story? On the 26th of March, West Farmer went public announcing that it it has been in negotiation with Linus and that it has the intention to take over this company. And it was a big surprise for many people, you know, for Malaysian, you know, who wonder why why would a big conglomerate like West Farmers want Linus when it has got quite a lot of problems unresolved licensing issues in Malaysia. I think market analysts share the same kind of concern. There's so many different ventures that West Farmers could have gone for while Linus, apart from the fact that Linus is a major rare earth producer outside of China and rare earth minerals are strategic minerals for many types of technologies at the high end, you know, the the advanced technologies, including green technologies. It may be consistent with um, West Farmers' move when it sold off its uh, coal mining stake um, to rebrand itself perhaps as a sustainable, green-conscious corporate entity. I'm not sure. But they're not going to just push over, are they, those problems that they've got? You know, no, it was interesting because um, when farmers came, including the CEO, came to Malaysia to have a discussion with the minister uh, in charge of Linus, Ministers for Science, Environment, or Environment, Science, Technology and Climate Change. And along the way, it got into the Prime Minister Mahathir Mohammed's ears 
and uh, also ended up meeting with him and made a very interesting offer that if it succeeded in taking over Linus, it would only bring in feedstock that has been partially processed in Australia, uh, removing the radioactive and other hazardous materials from the ore before sending it for Malaysia for the final stage of uh, refining. And of course, you know, to Mahathir, who is very pro-industry, who had fear earlier that shutting down liners would spark a negative image of Malaysia as a industrial friendly, industry friendly country, welcomed this kind of suggestion because it means that, you know, it, it is kind of a win-win situation in the long term for Malaysia in that they still keep the, the refining processing plant, but without the toxic waste. But, you know, for many people in the civil society in the, in, and also some in the government, the question remains, what do we do with the waste that has already been generated by Linus? And, wh- and where is it at the moment? Yeah, the waste, there's nearly 2 million, well, less than 2 million tons of uh, two types of waste. One is is the hazardous, toxic, radioactive waste. And the other stream uh, are mainly uh, contaminated gypsum. they all sitting by the plants in the industrial estate in Kuantan. As, as mentioned before, he actually wanted industry, he wanted foreign investment, but he knew that radioactive waste is unpalatable politically. Right. So by making a concession where you can still keep the industry but without the waste, in a way it is um, showing him as, you know, being a fairly wise leader for Malaysia. So he had made mistake in the past by allowing Mitsubishi to continue with his problematic rare earth processing plant, which ended up you know, leaving the radioactive waste in Malaysia and sacrificing like a fairly large chunk of a pristine area uh, to become a permanent waste dump, which cannot be used for any other purposes. So the land use potential, you know, for a waste dump is very hard. Well, it's, it's basically zero. So that is an economic factor that is taken into consideration because Linus waste is many, many times more than the Bukit Merah Asian rare earth plants. Would that satisfy the civil society if that happens? If the waste is processed mm. here in Australia first to remove the radioactivity... Oh, yeah, the ores remove, yeah, yeah. yeah well, semi-process. Will that, um, satisfy, will that satisfy the civil society or not? I guess it all depends on the, on the details. The devil's always in the fine prints. It will not probably satisfy Australian green groups who are concerned then that, you know, this industry is going to generate a huge amount of waste and whether or not it's going to be disposed of properly uh, in, in Australia, that's another question. Of course, there, there are much tighter regulation and a higher, a greater degree of scrutiny in Australia by EPA and so on. But, you know, just like uranium mining, there are leakages, there are problems. 
So I'll say that, you know, the Malaysian may accept the semi-processed uh, radioactive-free feedstock in the future, but Australian green groups will have to then, you know, battle in the home front, you know, whether to, to work out whether or not the company, whoever buys over Linus or Linus itself, will actually manage the waste with a high degree of um, safety uh, in mind and also environmental standards. Is West Farmers the only proposed takeover or are there others in the pipeline? We're not sure. I mean, at this stage, from what is available in the public realm or in the media realm, we've only come across West Farmers. Now, this is going to cost a fair bit to set up a plant in Western Australia, isn't it, if they agree to that? Who's... Yes, yes. The expensive part of the operation is actually in the cracking and separation process, mainly because of the amount of waste that it will generate and also the, the, the use of very highly hazardous uh, substances like high concentrated sulfuric and hydrochloric acid and a, a range of reagents at very, very high temperature. I think something like 600 to 750 degrees Celsius. Um, so that part of the plant will be expensive, but also the approval process may take a while. Are there plants, similar plants around the world? In China, mostly, uh, and also in USA, with the Mollycorp Malpass mine, which has uh, since closed down temporarily due to its bankruptcy uh, situation. I think it has since bought over by um, a, a joint venture with China or something like that. Uh, in China, definitely, there are many processing plants. Some are better than others. Uh, and the Chinese has since tightened is uh, environmental standard to make sure pollution is kept to the minimal. Would this be have to be agreed to by the federal government or the state government in Western Australia if it gets the go-ahead? Definitely the Western Australian government. They, on radiation issues, there are some federal policy in place which, um, yeah, if, if the cracking and pro, uh, separation process is done in, in Western Australia, it will have to um, satisfy policy and guidelines from APANSA, which is Australia's Radiation Safety and Protection Authority. Yeah, so it will take a, a, a lot longer for approval to be granted. There are actually several other rare earth mines in the feasibility state in trying to develop, you know, like Australian-based processing as well. And it has taken many years. Some have given up, uh, like Arafura. So it is not a simple pro- procedure, mainly because of the amount of hazardous waste that will be generated in this kind of uh, industry. Is it still a hostile takeover bid? I mean, according to the media, it's hostile. It is very difficult to figure out exactly what's going on between West Farmer and Linus. The interesting thing is that the West Farmer bids given Malaysia a bit more bargaining power, you know, over Linus waste because West Farmer hasn't openly rejected the concept of shipping the waste 
away from Malaysia or, you know, not doing anything about it. And we're found as ways using the fact that Linus has a license condition or a couple of license conditions imposed on it by the Malaysian authority to push down the price. So it is a kind of a three-way wrangle. The winner, who will be the winners, we don't know. And also as to whether West Farmer will continue to bid down the price to try and take over Linus, we have yet to see what will happen. This project has taken up a lot of your time over many years now. How are you feeling personally, Lee Tan? Frustrated in that sense that, you know, we have 500,000 tonnes of toxic waste sitting on a pit mangrove with evidence that groundwater has been contaminated with heavy metals that are also from that waste, which the Linus has denied to date. And there are 50 families living off groundwater directly within five kilometres from the plant. And, you know, groundwater is usually linked to local waterways, river and streams and lakes and, and even to the sea. P- local people are living off also from the seafood produced in that mangrove floodplains and in the estuary and also in the coast. Yeah, I mean, it is very irresponsible that Linus has not done more to make sure that this waste is managed safely to prevent any health consequences. All along, Linus has denied, in fact, even went to the extent of claiming that its operation is a zero-harm operation. I mean, it's ridiculous. You can't say that uh, radioactive and toxic waste uh, zero harm. I mean, and yet Linus made that claim and got away with it in Malaysia. And also local people, some people, especially people who are more aware and informed and know what's actually in Linus waste are very frustrated as well because um, so much of their time and energy is being consumed by, you know, making sure that the advocacy and the campaign to try and, um, you know, stop this operation is uh, successful. And it is now seven years down the track. Nothing much has changed, you know, as the waste accumulated through time and that the environment's slowly getting contaminated. As you've pointed out many times, this is the second plant in Malaysia Mm. doing this work. Have there been serious health problems for the people in the area from the first plant? Yeah, definitely with the Bukit Merah plant, there have been very serious health problems and even death from uh, leukaemia. Children, you know, uh, there was very high incident of um, childhood leukemia in the in the area near the plant, and they are countless number of miscarriages, and also they they've been uh, cases of birth defects. Some of the children born with birth defects have already passed away, and there's no epidemiological study to actually look at exactly how bad it is and the the real impact 
from that particular plant. And now with liners and its uh, radioactive waste, it is actually many, many times, like, I think it's something like the amount of waste produced by liners is already 40 times that of the first case. Although, you know, the the first case has higher radioactivity because I think the uranium content was higher there. But this, in this particular case, I mean, the amount of it, the, the bulk of it that may permanently stay in Malaysia makes it a real problem because of the capacity or the lack of it and also the level of knowledge and understanding on the hazard from this kind of waste in Malaysia that's a lot lower than in Australia. So, yeah, it is a big problem. So there's a big concern that mm. they'll, the honest will wash their hands of this? Yeah, exactly. It can go bankrupt, it can get taken over, and then the waste is not dealt with in the takeover. You know, the plant in Malaysia could well be abandoned and that future construction will focus on development in Australia, which will leave Malaysia high and dry. It is a case of environmental injustice, and it is, you know, quite often being um, brought about by Australian company because there's no law binding Australian companies to the same standard and um, the same kind of... Uh, uh, modus operandi that they would be expected to adhere to if they are operating in Australia. You know what I mean? When they're operating in overseas, there's no law to control them by Australian government. Very often they pick countries with very weak governance. And Linus went into Malaysia in the period when Najib Razak was the prime minister and, you know, he's now being investigated for very serious corruption problems. So that's where we are at at the moment. And where is his trial at at the moment? He's been charged, I think, from my understanding. Um, there's been a media blackout in Malaysia because there's been a gag order by Najib team to not report the case. So there are only a few international media that are not bound by this gag order reporting it. He's not in jail yet, but he's definitely been charged, yeah, for all kinds of um, uh, wrongdoings, including failing to pay taxes and also, you know, scandal to do with the one MDB state trust that he was instrumental in setting up um, to use it to siphon money from the state or from Malaysia into his personal account. So all of that are still being on trial at the moment. How did he get the gag order? I assume that it is through the court. I've just come across this new story this morning. Haven't had a chance to go into detail yet. Yeah. I'm just wondering the reasons that he gave or um, his lawyers gave to get it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, <laughs> he he still has a lot of money. He could afford to buy, you know, to buy the best legal team. He could, he he, the his money can uh, get him. So it's been very challenging. He's stretching the court resources extensively in Malaysia to put, you know, to bring him to court. 
the new government in Malaysia has many challenges. And, you know, dealing with Najib is one of the biggest ones. What about his wife? Is she going to court too? Last week I thought he went to the... He was called to attend a session at the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission. I think he, she was charged, as far as I understand. It was meant to be a jail sentence, but I'm not sure the status of that at the moment. Okay. Lee, well, there's no rest yeah. for the wicked, is there? You've still oh, got to keep yeah. going on this one. I don't know. <laughs> it's quite tiring. <laughs> yeah. What can you do? And that is environmental consultant Lee Tan speaking about the proposed takeover of the Linus Corporation by West Farmers in Western Australia. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986, and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers since 1976. In recent years, the regime in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, has been in the news for all the wrong reasons. In 2015, a half a century of military dictatorship officially ended with free elections, but with the military still a major force. Then in 2017, an army operation against alleged terrorists in Rakhine State drove more than half a million Muslim Rohingya to flee to neighbouring Bangladesh and there they remain in often appalling conditions. Today we go back three decades and the conflict which resulted in more than 100,000 people fleeing their homes into refugee camps in Thailand along the Thai-Burma border. This was also the time of the establishment of basic medical clinics along that border. I'm speaking with Jackie Whelan, a long-time volunteer with the Burma Children's Medical Fund, which was set up later. Jackie, I know you weren't there around the end of the 1980s, but can you explain the hows, the whys of the situation in that area which led to the establishment of the clinics? Burma's been under military rule since 1962 and the area that we are in on the Thai-Burma border that we operate in has been in conflict since post-Second World War, so the, the late 1940s. But in 1988, the entire country, the whole of Burma, after 26 years of military rule, there was a, a huge uprising and that was primarily led by students in the cities and it spread throughout most areas of Burma in that time. And as a result, because the Karen, who were the ethnic group on the Taiwan border area, had been in conflict for so long, they had actually camps established along the Taiwan border for, for many years. So a lot of students at that time fled to that area. Now, as a result, 
Dr. Cynthia Mung, who set up the Mayo Clinic, she was one of those students, and she, along with many of her fellow students, ended up in the Thai-Burma border. And as there were so many people fleeing, they could see the Karen, the ethnic group in that area, had long been neglected. They set up a little clinic and they started to treat people. So students fleeing the conflict and Karen, ethnic Karen people in that area, who had also fled the Thai-Burma border. And a lot of students didn't make it, did they? No, no. And and the the estimate, the the exact number of who was killed is, is still unknown to this day. But you know, the consensus is you know there was thousands in in that particular conflict. Is it the case that they had to cross the river to get into Thailand, or wasn't that situation in that particular area? There was on both sides of the river, so a lot of people came across and. On the other side, where the, the, the Karen-controlled areas, um, you see, the Karens had had a long, well-established both military wing and political wing. So there's the KNLA, which is the Karen National Liberation Army, and then also the KNU, which is the Karen National Union. And they had many, many years of supporting their own people who were fleeing the oppression and the, the brutal military onslaughts of um, Burma's rulers. In the 80s, there were some very notorious battles that, that occurred in that particular area. So, so some students were still on the Burma side in in the camps, and some then many fled across. And of course, at that time, then what's very well known is, is the number of refugee camps that then sprung up along the Thai-Burma border. And many of those that arrived were, would have been injured in some way. Oh, yeah, injured. Many with malaria. You know, uh, and, and other tropical diseases. Uh, living, you know, many were from the city. They they were now in the in the in the jungle areas. You know, so malaria was a huge problem, particularly for, for those people coming. And also then, you know, over the years, in that that area, like uh, currently, obviously dengue, malaria, landmines, and, and all those. And then just the illnesses of. You know, children who, families fleeing with with children who, who pick up diseases. You know, if a child's born and in, in with congenital birth condition, then th- there's nowhere for that child to be treated. So under under five, infant mortality is very high in that particular area. Well, it's one thing to recognise the, the the desperate need of the people for medical aid. But how did she do it? How did she set up these clinics? And I read that in the first year, 2,000 people were treated just in that one year alone. Well, that was, yeah, Dr. Dr. Cynthia set up Maytow Clinic after in that, that particular area. And then our organisation, the Burma Children Medical Fund, evolved from that many years later. But Dr. Cynthia, I suppose just the sheer necessity of us at that time, they, they did what they could. I mean, it's this quite a famous story of Dr. Cynthia using a rice cooker as a steriliser at the time, and quite remarkable, really, what they achieved and the numbers of people that they were able to treat with nothing. And, and their intention at the time was just to be a temporary solution to that current need. But obviously, as time evolved, the situation in Burma didn't improve, and that's why you see... You know, now, almost over 30 years later, we have 
yeah, the clinic is still there on the Taiwan border. What was the reaction of the Thai military in those early years? Well, the Thai military was obviously, they have a long history of, on all sides of their borders, of, of people coming across. And they were, I suppose, I mean, I don't know the, the in-depth machinations of, of all that happened, but, you know, the Thais certainly allowed hundreds of thousands of people to cross their border and to to come into their country and seek sanctuary. And certainly, you know, with that, those, those numbers of people, there, there were tensions. But I think, you know, the, what, it, what necessitated was that a good relationship was built up. And certainly over the years, I would say that there's probably been difficulties, but... And that's why the, our founder, the Burma Children Medical Fund founder, Kanchana, uh, when she started with the clinic being Thai herself, she was able to make those relationships more robust. And that allowed the establishment of our organization for facilitating the treatment in Thai hospitals of people from Burma. But it was that robust relationship with, with the Thai authorities that allowed BCMS to form. And I think when, when we did were established in 2006, you know, there was a lot of resistance within the Thai security apparatus to us because you know, people, these people are considered illegally in Thailand. They have no documentation. We were able to work with the Thai security apparatus and, and get the necessary documentation to allow the transportation of people from the Thai Burma border area because there's a lot of, obviously, military checkpoints in, in that particular area. There's a lot of security that has to be passed in order to get to Chiang Mai. So, you know, over the years, the relationship has evolved in many ways. And, you know, with different leadership within the country, certainly, you know, different leadership within the various security organizations. But the clinic has remained steadfast, and, and certainly BCMF, the Burma Children Medical Fund, has too. Just interested in that 18 years between the first clinic was set up and the BCMF was founded, mm-hmm. where did the equipment, the medical supplies, the staff, the funding, how did you arrange all that? Well, again, these things evolved as people started to hear more and more about what was happening. And, you know, the world's awareness was drawn to those particular areas. Organisations got involved, individuals got involved, communities got involved. You know, we had many volunteers volunteer doctors internationally from Australia, the US, you know, all over really, come and, and support the establishment of the clinic. And when I started in 2008, that was the 20th anniversary of the clinic. And, you know, if you see the old, the, the clinic has actually moved, but if you see the old infrastructure that was there, you can very much see where, you know, the original building was that they worked out of, which was just a... a a very small ramshackle wooden structure, two-story that was rented, and and on those premises, then, you know, as the funding came in from various sources, they were able to add on departments and 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 expand and grow and you know expand the training of the medics involved. And where did the training take place? And the training took place on site, but also um, as the camps. What happened within the refugee camps as well as as the organizations moved in, there was education programs within the camps. So the clinic sourced 
to their medics from, from students within the camps and, and coming displaced people coming from the villages and were able to nurture that talent and develop training programs, again, with support from both international volunteers and then from the, the knowledge within the clinic itself as well. And once the fund was set up, that meant that more things could be done, the children or the people injured could be sent off to hospital, which wasn't possible before? Absolutely. So, so with the establishment of the Burma Children Medical Fund, and in those early days, the focus really was on children. And so the, the history behind how the, the fund was established is Kantana Thornton, who's our program director and, and founder, she was a volunteer, and she threw Australian Volunteers International. She had come to Thailand in 2001. Um, her situation was quite unique because she is Thai-born, so she grew up in, in Thailand and moved to Australia as a, as a teenager. So she was Australian educated, did her nursing degree in Australia and her postgraduate in Australia, and then came to the Thai Bono in 2001 with her husband. And at that time, as I said, she set up many programs within the clinic, so liaison, liaising with the, the Thai authorities, building those relationships, and also working with the clinic on their child and maternal health program. And what she saw continually in those, in those years was children coming to the clinic with conditions that in Australia they would be spotted at birth and treated immediately. And while you would have some children that, that obviously, you know, in Australia we have particularly with the genital heart conditions, some children do die, but the majority of children can be treated. And she understood that the Thai hospital system had the facilities, had the capacity, had the, the knowledge to treat these children, but we didn't have the funding. And so she started to seek funding, so from friends and family, for, for cases that came through, so urgent cases, usually children with congenital heart defects, that if treated in the Thai hospital system would survive. And so in those early days, she would hire a pickup truck and take those children to Chiang Mai, offer, always accompanying them herself, often with oxygen tanks, and get them to Chiang Mai. And we started to see that with the right funding, they were very successful outcomes. So children were then going on to live a productive life. They were surviving and they were going back into their communities and thriving. Just like in Australia, when, when children are treated, you know, they, they go on to lead normal, healthy and happy lives. So she continued then, so she decided after a few, very few, few successful cases that, okay, this is something that can be set up as a program, we can seek funding and we can, we can treat many different conditions. But as I mentioned before, that required then a lot of negotiation with the Thai security, so the police, the army, to get the appropriate permissions. And there was resistance, but I think her strength and her tenacity is that, you know, her strength is her tenacity that she saw it as her role to explain to these authorities why it was so important that, that our, our shared humanity, the compassion, that the, the funding is there, we just need the proper documentation to get through. And, and it, she did it. And so... 
in those early days, as I said, she was going back and forth to Chiang Mai herself, hiring pickup truck. And we were based at Maytag Clinic, so we operated out of Maytag Clinic, and most of our referrals came from the children's outpatient department at Maytag Clinic. And when I came in 2008, it was Quintana and Misu in the, in the children's outpatient department working very closely together to facilitate this treatment. And as more and more donors came on, obviously the more the program was able to expand. You are listening to Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR and I'm speaking with Jackie Whelan who for many years has been a volunteer with the Burma Children's Medical Fund. What was your role? I came in 2008 as an Australian volunteer through the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development Program. Uh, so I was 28 at the time so I just I didn't bother getting my teeth as a youth, and I had a year, a year's contract to go and work and support the team and develop the capacity, I suppose, of, of the team to do the patient intake, to the documentation, make more robust documentation, and to just help the program expand, seeking funding, like that. So I was there till 2009, my first year, and came back to Australia to, to have a baby. And I suppose you could say I never left ever since because I continued to work from Australia and then go back and forwards in those years. Part of the furniture now. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to emphasise now that there's also the Burmese Adult Medical Fund and the Burmese Women's Medical Fund. Absolutely. So once the funding was well established for the Burma Children Medical Fund, the, we couldn't ignore the need of adults coming through. And what's really remarkable is that in, in Burma, you will see adults living with conditions in, in Australia that, you, I mean, we had international doctors come and just say it, it's not possible that these people are still surviving the conditions they've had often since birth because we've never seen it in, in the West. You just wouldn't see it in the West. You know, it would be picked up and at some stage in the early youth. You know, I remember a case of, you know, a young, a young mother with a, with a heart condition who yeah, came to the clinic and she was pregnant and just totally didn't know how she was going to, to cope after she had a child and and once she had treatment, it was like talking to a different person. She had that energy and that, that life was, was brought back to her and she was able to then properly care for her, for her child. And that's what I think BCMF does so well, is it's not just getting funding for treatment, it's all the social support that is provided to ensure that treatment is successful. So supporting whether it's a family, supporting the family of a child who has to go through treatment or as adults supporting the needs of mothers and so that they can get well and can go on to care for, your, for their children. And the ramifications of that for the society at large is that we have functioning, you know, functioning human beings who can then contribute to the community and the society. And we often have... Uh, 
you know, the most wonderful feedback from children who receive treatment and they're just so grateful and their life is, is, is turned around and the energy they have and they, they tell us when I'm older and I'm going to go to school because all they've ever wanted to go to is to go to school and they've been so sick, you know, they haven't been able to, to participate and so I'm going to study, I'm going to study real hard, I'm going to be a doctor like the doctors I saw in Chiang Mai, you know, I'm going to go out and do something to, to help people the way I was helped. So I think you can't underestimate the, the flow-on effect from, you know, receiving that, that help and knowing that someone hasn't given up on you and left you to die. Even though a number of people, including the children, are sent to Chiang Mai Hospital, would you say that the majority of the work still happens in the clinics? So we receive referrals. Any any patient that Maytag Clinic doesn't have the capacity to, to treat, BCMS, get, they refer to us. So even though we're based within the clinic, we're actually an external organisation and we work in partnership, but it's a very close partnership. It's our, our closest partnership. And so the patients are then referred to us. And then whether they can be referred locally, we mentioned before our women's program, but we, we have a program that um, is specifically for women with reproductive and gynecological conditions. And the majority of them can be treated at the local hospital in Mesos, and BCMF, again, accepts the referral and then facilitates that treatment in Mesos. For the uh, more complex cases that the clinic can't treat, then we refer to Chiang Mai, so all the heart conditions, the gastro conditions, anything neurological, that will be referred to us. You know, the majority of, of, of patients we accept, but, uh, you know, due to funding over the years, there are some conditions that, that we can't accept because, you know, previously we did have cancer patients that would come and be treated, but the, the sheer expense of that now is too much for our organization to to bear because the money that we would have to put towards that is, is money that um, is taken away from other areas of the program. But now that we have expanded into Burma so the, because of the political changes in Burma in the recent years and the relative opening up of the country, we now have many partnerships all over the country and we're able to reach people at different stages of the illness. So before when patients had to come to Maytow Clinic, we had to wait until they turned up. We weren't able to access them at earlier stages of the illness. And due to the poverty and the, the nature of crossing an international border, often people didn't come until they were, it was, they were absolutely desperate and it was their last hope. So they had sought all other options within Burma. Many had traveled as far as Rangoon after, particularly in the rural areas, how it, how it happens is there's sort of smaller little clinics with medics in them, and then the medic won't have the capacity to treat, so they refer them to maybe a larger hospital in the, in the nearest town, and then that hospital won't have the capacity to treat, so they'll tell them to go to Rangoon. Now, all this is very, very expensive. So when they go to Rangoon, they find out that the cost of treatment is astronomical, well beyond anything they would earn in a lifetime. So however it happens, they hear about Maytow Clinic on the Thai-Burma border, and so they, they, make, they make that last-ditch 
effort to get to Maytag Clinic. And so by the time they're referred to BCMS, they're very late in their illness. But now with the opening up of Burma, we've been able to establish partnerships within, with organizations working on the ground in Burma and to access people earlier in their illness. So you're not only funding the people in the hospitals or the hospital in Chiang Mai, you also have to fund the aftercare. How does that happen? We support people. So we have a patient house in Chiang Mai. And so once they're referred to Chiang Mai, patients stay in the patient house while they're waiting for appointments. So they'll have that initial appointment with the, with the doctor in Chiang Mai Hospital. And then they will either be asked to come back for follow-up or they'll be put on the surgical list. So they'll get a date for treatment. Now, that could be many months, depending, again, on the urgency of, of, the, of the illness, but it could be, for some patients, it's relatively close, but for many, they then get a follow-up appointment, which could be months later. So they will either return, um, depending on whereabouts in Burma they're from. So we have a patient van that goes from Mesot to Chiang Mai every week, sometimes twice a week, if we have a very high caseload. And we... Logistically, we, we, because at any given time, you know, there's many, many active cases that we could have hundreds, uh, 150 that we're logistically organizing the appointments for, the coming back between Chiang Mai and Mesos, who needs to stay longer at the patient house. So if a patient is from right up in northern Burma, we're not going to send them home while they wait for the appointment. They'll stay in Chiang Mai and wait for their appointment because the journey of traveling when they're sick it, and, and, and the time, and it's just too much for them. So rather than, than traveling back and forwards, they'll just stay at the patient house. And others, you know, if they're from around the Thailand border area, we might send them back with the van back to Mesod, and then home is very close so they can, they can return home and, until their appointment. And again, based on the, based on the, uh, the can, the condition and the severity of the case, um, we'll assess whether to send them back or not. But that patient house is it's a home away from home, and it's been, over the years, it's, it's developed and evolved, and it's really become a, a beautiful space for the patients to be in and, and a healing space. We have a little garden that the patients, um, those well enough, can, can work on. We've got a little play area for the children, and um, we have organizations within Chiang Mai that come and do activities on a weekly basis with the patients. Some come and do English teaching, some come and do activities with the children. So there's, there's much there to, to because obviously the, the boredom, being away from home, we try and we recognize that that space has to be a, a re rehabilitative area for them. And so we try to, to make it as homely and as communal as we can to, to support the patients. My role has been very varied. And it, again, I've been there for 10 years. And at the moment, it's more focused on, obviously, I have the, the most organizational knowledge, so supporting with reports that need to be edited and just keeping the consistency in our communication to our supporters. And prior to that, I was doing the, the volunteer recruitment, so we require a lot of volunteer support to, to keep the organization ticking over. We have many 
talented staff, but the workload is, is quite, for such a small an organization, we have a very, very large caseload. And we've treated over 3,000 patients since we were established. And of that, 1,200 are through our Wheelchairs for Kids program. So we've had, we, we get wheelchairs from Perth, Australia, from a fabulous organization called Wheelchairs for Kids. And they're a group of uh, retirees based here in Perth who construct wheelchairs in a, in a big warehouse in northern, the northern suburbs of Perth. And they send them, distribute them all over the world. And we were actually the recipient of their 30,000 wheelchair the year before last. And we received seven shipping containers of wheelchairs, so um, well over 1,200 that we've distributed and fitted so far. And uh, I digress a little bit because you're asking me about my role, but it comes down to, to just the sheer, the sheer workload of our organization. And volunteers have been crucial to that throughout the years. And we often get students. We get people from all backgrounds, students looking for international experience. We get uh, retirees, we get, and everybody in between, people looking for hiatus from work. And they usually come for about three months. So I was recruiting volunteers for, for many years and going backwards and forwards between Perth and, and Thailand. And then, you know, I've worked on fundraising and reporting, and so we have many donors international and and donors here in Australia and obviously we have robust reporting requirements to inform them of, of our operations. I'd imagine that every patient that you are able to treat and help is, is special but are there any maybe a couple of maybe a child or a woman or a man who stands out as a great success story? There are and you know there's really some remarkable human beings out there and, and people who have endured such a lot and, and I think you know for me there's you know the man who was attacked by acid had a, there's an acid attack and he was completely maimed and disfigured and he came through us and received many years of treatment and reconstruction and healing and you know, it came out of it all with, you know, just the ability of the human spirit to to come through that. I mean, the sheer horrific nature of, of his injuries was, you just don't think a human being can survive that. Um, you know, and the mothers who, who come through and, you know, have fled conflict and have been, you know, living in these parts of Burma where they just have no active treatment and who made that journey. You know, we had one mother who traveled for four days with her little boy, and he was blue in the face when he arrived to us and from he had heart condition. You know, I mean, you can't, you just can't fathom the, not just the physical journey itself, but the nature of, you know, passing through checkpoints, coming through an international border, and making that journey across, and not knowing whether you will get help or not, but making that journey anyway in, in that last hope that you will get help and that there's someone there who will see your child and say, yes, I will help, I will treat him. Um, you know, then the remarkable change in the children and the families once that child has received treatment. So, the, again, the joy and the gratitude 
I mean, the sheer gratitude of our patients who, you know, many, many still contact us years later to let us know that, yes, you know, my child is thriving and children come and, and make the journey Then, when they're no longer children. That's how long we've been in operation. You know, we're seeing now, you know, the children that Kanchana treated in the early days, you know, are coming back to see her and they're, you know, they're, they're in their late teens now, many of them. And, you know, they're, again, just the gratitude and the love and the and the remarkable difference that they're trying to make for their communities. And, you know, I mean, there's so many, all the smiles, all the beautiful smiles, and children who receive wheelchairs, you know, and, and again, you know, the, the, it's, and it's often the mother and the father and, and you know, the, 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 the effect on the child who can now be more fully integrated into the community and there's the effect on the family. So, you know, often for a mother, she's, carried that child since they were born, if they were born with conditions. Many, many have fevers in their infancy, so they were born healthy babies, but they have fevers in their infancy, and they become disabled, and so as a result of the fever. And so mothers who have carried their children since they were, since they were babies and now receive a wheelchair, and literally that weight has, has been lifted off them, that they can now, perhaps the mother can return to work to uh, you know, bring extra income into the family. To just, I remember one family, um, a little boy who, who had received terrible burns, and you know the family had bad luck upon bad luck, and they were very poor. I mean, some of the poorest in the country, and and you know still able to smile and laugh and 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 tell their story. And you know he, the father was just look at me and say, I'm very unlucky. I said, he said, I don't know why this happened. But, and he's laughing as he's telling us, you know, whereas here in, in Australia, if we heard that story, we would be, you know, it's just the, the, really the spirit of the people is quite remarkable. How do people donate to the fund? There's many ways to, to donate and support us. Obviously, financial um, donations are our greatest need. And we have donors that we work with, and then we have many individuals and communities around the world that support us. And our website is www.burmachildren.com, and we have a, a donate button on that, or you can email us directly. There's contact details there. And many communities do get together. We have supporters in Australia, England, Ireland, the U.S., Canada, you know, many, many countries all over the world and, and often communities come together and do fundraising sort of drives for us. And people are very drawn to, to the work that we do because the the benefits are, are so obvious and so tangible and and, and we, we love to tell the stories of our patients because, again, it just shows the remarkable transformation that a donation can make. So... By receiving, because health is everything. If it, if a child particularly doesn't have health, then then it cannot grow up and thrive. And these are the future of Burma. These are the future generations. And so, without that support that we get from all over the world, you know, we couldn't do the work that we do. And so, there's the financial donation. We get also many volunteers. So, as I said before, people coming over to to help and support us. And you know, currently, we, as I said, we've been get, we. We have received seven wheelchair, uh, containers of wheelchairs and wheelchairs for kids in Perth, and we had 
a donor that would support this. The wheelchairs for kids, they provide the wheelchairs free of cost, but we have to find um, a sponsor for the container to to transport those wheelchairs to Thailand. And we are currently looking for a new sponsor. We have had a sponsor for the previous seven, but we do need a, a, a sponsor for that program. And so we, we are looking for that at the moment. Also, we have donations in kind, so equipment. And we have another organization that provides us with adult wheelchairs. And we are looking for some eye screening equipment as well because we have an eye screening program. So it's an outreach program where we go into particularly rural parts of Burma, all over the country, and we do um, our staff are trained to screen patients for, for glasses and identify any patients that might require surgery. So the, the fantastic opportunity that our outreach programs have, so our wheelchair fitting, our eye screening, we do a reproductive health and rights training and also a safe touch training, and that allows us to go out into the community. And as I said, at the same time, we can access patients earlier in their illnesses so we can identify potential cases that we can refer for treatment. So there's that whole range of ways that people can support us. And just by, by following our work and, you know, sharing our work with, with communities and contacts and just developing that network of people around the world that are, that are following us and supporting us and sharing the work that we do, Thanks so much, Jackie. That was great. Okay. And that was Jackie Whelan from the Burmese Children's Medical Fund. Look them up if you can help them. It'd be great. That's all I've got for today, but I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned in just a couple of minutes' time for Done by Law. Let's go out with David Rovick's song for the Eureka Stockade. Bye for now. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851, they struck gold upon the ground. Every voyage was a long one, months upon the stormy sea. Some to seek their fortune, others escaping slavery. What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs, discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs. The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse. The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun The crown tried to divide them, giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it, they said it's all of us or none They built a stockade while the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die The rebel miners waited For whatever lay in store And on one December morning In 1854 The redcoats attacked the camp Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers Who'd risen to the call They swore an oath Beneath the southern cross They'd stand together and break the license laws.
From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun Things go their way, but when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day, the crown conceded everything, all of their demands. They'd want an end to license fees, the right to vote and land. So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest. They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard 10,000 miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun.